There's a retreat going on right now. It started a couple weeks ago up the hill. Two months. Two month silent retreat. There's a one month option. It's hard to get into though. Those retreats sell out too. They're very popular. So, um, you know, there's a sort of idea in uh, spiritual circles that one of the things that holds the world together in some sense is the people who are devoting themselves to intensive meditation. There's even mythology about that there are certain mystics in the you know, caves in the Himalayas who are doing it's only because of their deep, deep meditation practice that the world doesn't explode into uh, more insanity. It would, it would be hard to imagine, but I guess it's always possible to be more insane. Um, that's just a, that has nothing to do with what I was going to talk about, but I, I always like to talk, just talk about, remind people that up just a, you know, a, a hundred yards away from here, there's people really doing intensive practice. And it's, a, it's precious to do that. So, um, step two. <coughs> step two says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, And, uh, you know, when I first saw that, it was like, okay, so if I believe in God, I'll be fixed, right? That's what the step is saying. It could be interpreted that way. And I'm sure some people do interpret it that way. I no longer interpret it that way. I think it's about believing in the possibility of change. Um, And so... I'm going to begin tonight, begin this portion of tonight, talking about faith. Belief and faith are not exactly synonyms, but they're closely related ideas. I think that a lot of people see this step as being about faith. And that, I think, is what, to some extent, is what the challenge of this step is. I want to talk about faith. Uh, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the uh, the faith's role in a Buddhist in the Buddhist tradition and Buddhist practice. Uh, you know, we have this term, faith-based religions. Uh, a term I, I find somewhat unpleasant. I don't know why, um, but. Uh, Buddhism, I think, would typically not be included in that list of faith-based religions. Um, Mainly because uh, in Buddhism we don't sort of posit a being that created and sustained and controls the world. In other words, we don't have God, capital G, in Buddhism. And so... That seems to be sort of the um, defining characteristic of a faith-based religion. And, and I'm just saying that. I don't know if that's exactly true, but it, you know, it's, it seems... We can, I think you can accept that as kind of a starting point. I hope you will. So 
I think that one of the things that draws people to Buddhism in contemporary times in, this, in our culture is that they don't think of it as a faith-based religion because they don't like faith or they're alienated by some of the things that faith-based religions teach. And uh, certainly that's something that uh, has appealed to me. Um, the, you know, what... No, I, I, and and I, I, this is not by any means meant to be a critique or a, a criticism of other religions, but I'm just trying to kind of get some context here. So I better stop before I uh, go any further. I I have some you know snarky things that I can say. So, uh, um, but uh, so let's come back to Buddhism. That's a safer territory. The fact is that Buddhist, that faith is, in fact, a central tenet of Buddhist teachings. Um, the, now, the Buddha gave a famous talk that people use to make the claim that there is that faith is not part of uh, Buddhism. This is called the, the Kalama Sutta. Uh, and this, the Kalamas were a tribe who lived at the time of the Buddha at a kind of crossroads where many different teachers came through. And each teacher would come through and say, I'm giving you the truth. Don't listen to those other teachers. You know? And then they'd leave town and the next teacher would come and say, no, no, don't listen to that guy who just left. I've got the real thing. So when the Buddha showed up, they were like, you know, you guys are showing up all the time telling us that you've got the story. How are we supposed to know? So he went through this list. He said, don't believe it just because somebody says it. Don't believe it because it's written down in a book. Don't believe it because your elders tell you to believe it. Don't believe it even if it's just logical to you because logic can be manipulated, as we know. Don't believe it just because it feels good to you. He said... The, the, the two criteria are believe it, uh, you know, try, try a teaching and see if the results are beneficial. And check with a wise person. Now, many people who talk about this sutra leave out the wise person and say, the Buddha said, you should decide for yourself, or you should, you know, it's all about your own experience, but it's really critical to not leave that out, that he didn't say, just figure it out for yourself. He said, try it, see how it works, and check with somebody who you really trust. So in recovery world, we might say that's a sponsor. It could be a Dharma teacher. It could be a, a partner or a friend. Uh, I think that the code in Buddhism that the, a lot of the teachings are actually given in sort of a code that a wise person actually refers to the Buddha. <laughs> but anyway, that just turns it around and makes it into a... And since he's not around, we have to uh, get the next best thing. So, this, but this teaching, nonetheless, 
does kind of put us in this position of saying, well, it's, where's, how is faith involved in this? You know, he's, he's not really saying that I'm supposed to just accept these teachings because he's giving them, accept them on faith. But where faith comes in is for you to try it at all. If you didn't have some faith, you wouldn't be here tonight. If you didn't have some faith in meditation. If you've never meditated before and you came in here, you know, why would you come here to sit here and do nothing you know, for half an hour? If you didn't have some faith that that was going to be beneficial. You don't, if you haven't experienced it, so what, what are you basing that on? Right? You have some faith. You have some inkling. So the, what's really critical about faith, first of all, in Buddhism, is that it's the thing that motivates us to take the first step, if you will. If we don't believe that there's any value in doing something, we'll never even try it. And as step two says, if we don't believe that there is potential for change or transformation, we won't take the steps or the actions that allow for that transformation. So this is how practical faith works. It's not, oh, I'm going to believe that some magical thing is going to come out of the sky and fix me, or if I say these words, I'm going to be healed. Or It's... It's much more down-to-earth than that. It's much more practical than that. But it has a very real impact on our lives. I would claim, without having thought about it very much, that every action we take is based on faith to some degree or other. You know, I, you know, I believe that when I get in my car and I turn the key... I believe, I have faith that the car's going to start. Now, occasionally it doesn't, right? But, uh, you know, and, I, and somehow I trust that, you know, the roads are going to be there, that, that Berkeley is still going to be there when I get back. Maybe this sounds absurd, but, but there's... If, if we don't have any belief in things, we just never act on them. And this is, this is what's really critical, because uh, coming back to recovery... This is why step two is so important. I don't think the important part of step two is believing that God will keep you sober. I think the important part of it is believing that I am someone who can get and stay sober or clean or stay in recovery, whatever your addiction is. Sober is just another shorthand. I think what undermines people much more than lacking a belief in God is lacking a belief in themselves. So the faith that we're really talking about isn't faith in something out there, it's faith in something in here. And this is something we all have to look at. How do I limit myself? How do I limit my own life by my beliefs about myself, about my own potential? When I was... uh, in high school, I started to experience depression. And the feeling I had was that I basically couldn't function. And that the only thing I could do was play music. 
I didn't feel as if I could stay in school, and so I didn't. I, didn't, I really didn't believe that I could go to college, and so I didn't. I pursued music as a career, which was nice, you know, to, in a certain way. But it was this incredibly limiting self-image of what I believed I was capable of. Now, I was fortunate that there was something I believed I was capable of, and there was something I loved that I could do, but the, the, my life became very circumscribed. I believed that I needed to be stoned all the time. You know, I didn't have faith in my own capacity to be with life as it was. I didn't trust that I could handle it, that life could be worth living if I weren't high. You know, so this is faith, right? Is, li- is life worth living without being intoxicated? And I think that this is one of the beliefs that we adopt when we become addicts, that in some ways that this is the best way to live. You know, that those suckers, I mean, I, uh, when I would be, you know, maybe you know, going to bed when everybody else in the world was getting up, because I was a musician and we were up all night, and I would, you know, hear people's cars starting as they were going off to the office, I thought they were the suckers, you know. Hey, I'm free to be high and to be playing music and, you know, it's cool. You know, and, and anyway, I mean, they have to, like, you know, go to work and, like, be straight all day. You know? I mean, whenever I had a day job, I would just sneak outside and get high, you know, so I didn't, didn't keep me from being high, but... You know, it's this, so there's, you know, part of faith is overcoming fear. You know, I had, fundamentally, I had a fear of life, of feeling life unfiltered, unintoxicated, undiluted. One of the things that happens as we come into recovery, there's this sense, uh, and maybe this might not be true for everyone, but I know it was true for me and I've heard it from many other people. There's this sense that it's really the opposite of how my life has become and it's the opposite of what I was sort of describing. There's a sense that now my life is going to really shrink because all I'm going to do is go to those meetings and it's going to be so boring and gray and all the color and excitement of life is going to be gone. As though, like, getting stoned for, like, 20 years was so exciting. You know what I mean? It's like what we used to call partying. I stopped being a party a long time ago. You know? That was not a party. So, you know, that we come into recovery not just with the struggle of letting go of an addiction, but letting go of a whole worldview and a whole belief system about life and about ourselves and how we're going to experience it and how we're going to live with it. It, it, So there's this fear. And of course, faith is an antidote to fear. Faith is a way of holding fear. That we, we, we can say to ourselves, this is really scary and difficult, 
but it's going to be okay. Yeah. I have a little exercise in my workbook. It's called I'll Be Okay. It's for step two. And where you just ask someone, or no, one person just says, I'll be okay because, and then they fill that in. And the person they're doing the exercise with just says, yes, you'll be okay. What else? Well, I'll be okay because I have a program. Yes, okay. Good. So what else? Well, I'll be okay because... And then you have to keep filling it out. I never did it myself, thank God. I don't know. I ran out of things already. But it's a fundamental question. And it's really a, it's a fundamental feeling we get when we get into recovery that is our faith, that we're going to be okay. You know. So in the one of the Buddhist models... Uh, called the five uh, spiritual powers. Uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha puts kind of mindfulness at the top, and then he has energy and concentration and faith and wisdom. And these are sort of relationships. So faith and wisdom are seen as balancing qualities. If we have so much faith that we don't question anything or think about it, we can wind up following some sort of misguided uh, teachings, uh, and that which I had that experience, so I know of, of what I speak. Um, the, the first stage of faith is called bright faith, and it's this just really getting excited, you know, and you're just totally uh, into it or the, the person or the teacher or the teaching. But there isn't much re- reflection. And as, as uh, energizing as that kind of faith is, there's also a risk inherent in it because there isn't, uh, there's, there's so much faith that there's not, much discernment or wisdom going along with it. So you wind up, this is what you see in a cult. You know, you, you, know, you, you believe in the guru, and, and they, if they say, you know, give me all your money and your wives and your, you know, or, well, I guess most people don't have multiple wives. So, it, you're, you, know, um, you know, and just follow me, and, and uh, you know, it's all going to be, you know, I'll take care of you. You know, it's, it's this sort of unquestioned, um, faith. And, uh, on the other hand, if you're all intellect, and this isn't exactly wisdom, but if if all you do, I mean, the, uh, if all you do is sort of crit- critique things or judge them or analyze them, or even if you you know get really into the esoterica of Buddhism, like oh yeah, not self emptiness, okay, that's really interesting, but you don't have anything in the heart to give or to open, then it becomes this very dry, sort of uh, uh, just intellectual exercise. And, uh, and that, you know, uh, um, there's lots of people who, you know, they call them bedstand Buddhists. You know, they have a stack of Buddhist books by their bed. 
Anybody out here? <laughs> you know, and you know, we read them, and then <sighs> that's it. You know, that's just all in the head, right? Oh yeah, that's great, great book. You know, but the practice is brought alive, not with the head, but at the heart and with the body, <laughs> putting our body on the line uh, in a you know safe way. So uh, this is um, how I think faith can be used and, and reflected on in a very constructive way for us. First of all, to see what, what are the limits of my belief in myself and the limits of my belief in the possibility of some process or some, uh, some inner or outer work transforming me. So, uh, to put it in more specific terms, do I really think that, uh, do, do I believe that uh, the 12 steps work? Uh, and do I believe that this meditation thing works? And then further, you know, how far am I willing to take those things? You know, my first year sober, I literally stood in the back of AA meetings and I didn't raise my hand. I didn't get anybody's phone number. I, I just, I observed. That was the limit of my faith in the program, really. Uh, you know, it was more complicated than that. It wasn't just faith, but that, that was an integral thing. At a certain point, I hit another wall in my addiction, it wasn't around drinking and using, but it was like an emotional wall. And I realized if I wanted to get what these people had, as they say, I had to do what they were doing. I had to sit down, I had to raise my hand, I had to become a member. And uh, you know, because I believed that it worked, I just hadn't been, had the willingness to do that. Right? Um, and you know what the steps then tell us is to keep just doing the next right thing well maybe the steps don't exactly tell us that the program tells us that and step three to me implies that that I need to you know kind of take risks I need to see that Nothing really is going to change until I start to do things that bring about change. And this is the law of karma, you know. So the law of karma simply says actions bring results. And the quality of your actions bring results of that quality. So if I do skillful or kind actions, they bring skillful and kind results. If I do unskillful, unkind actions, that's the kind of results I get. So the program is telling us, and the Buddha is telling us, to do a certain type of actions. But but further, that no actions 
you know, brings no results, right? So I could, you know, I got sober and I stood in the back of the rooms. I had taken a certain amount of actions and I got a certain amount of results, but it was really limited. When I started to act more in the program, that actually inspired me to do more outside the program because I started to see that real change was possible for me. It wasn't until I was 37 or 38 years old, two or three years sober, that I realized what I had believed about myself as a 16-year-old was not true, that actually I could go to school, that I could enjoy life, that I could be in a relationship that was not just about self-centered, you know, satisfying my own self-centered cravings. And that's another step of faith. You know, going back to school, I just remember walking across the campus of Santa Monica College in order to do whatever I had to do, which I didn't even know what I had to do, saying the serenity prayer over and over because I was scared as hell. But I had that faith, right, that something, something can really change. If we don't think that anything can change in our lives, then essentially we don't believe in the law of cause and effect. So this is the other aspect of step two that I think is valuable to reflect on. If we really feel stuck you know, if it's just as basic as I don't believe I can stay sober, or it's more complicated than that, like, you know, whether it's around relationships or work or, you know, emotional life. If I believe that those things can't change, then I don't believe that there's such a thing as cause and effect. I just believe that things are fated to be the way they are, that there's some way in which the world has frozen or is stuck and it can't be moved. So that, from a Buddhist viewpoint, would be delusion. (laughs) Because the Buddha says, you know, nothing is frozen, nothing is destined. You can get into some bad places, things can be very difficult, but actions always bring results, and the quality of those actions always brings results of that quality. Now, just as we are told in step three, that doesn't mean I get to define exactly what happens, and I certainly don't get to define the time frame in which it happens. Change happens in its own time frame, just as spiritual growth happens in its own time frame. And that's where we get thrown back once again on faith, that we have to be able to keep showing up and uh, without sort of an expectation that something's going to happen for us right now, or even that something specific is going to happen for us. You know, when I went back to school, I had this idea that I would be a therapist because it seemed like everybody who went back to school in AA became a therapist, and that sounded good. And I thought, I've been depressed a lot, so probably I'll be a good therapist, you know. I'll understand the... the my clients seemed manageable. You know, I wasn't going to like become a computer programmer. Um, and I went back to school, and 
at the end of my first semester, my English teacher took me aside and he said, did you ever think about being a writer? And I kind of, you know, withdrew, like, no, because, like, I was a musician and I don't want to, like, keep doing something in the arts and be impractical. I'm trying to, like, you know, get my life together here. He said, well, there's this really good creative writing teacher and you might want to just take a semester with him. So what I'd ha- had I learned in the program, I'd learned to trust people who were more experienced than me who gave me advice. You know? And so I took that step. I went in, I took that class. I fell in love with writing right away. In my typical impractical and addictive way, I got hooked on it and wound up going to graduate school in creative writing. And, and, you know, it's just so interesting the way, you know, our personalities don't change that much over time, even though you might get your life more together and behave better. I became, I got deluded with the same kind of dream. Like I was going to be a rock star. Now I'm going to be a writer star. I'm going to be a a famous novelist. Well, it doesn't matter if I'm famous as long as I'm rich, right? That's, and, uh, that's where my faith that was like just doing the next right thing fell into the faith of delusion, the bright faith of like, ah, ah, I'm just going to get it. I'm just yes. And, uh, and I finished graduate school and nobody bought my novel, you know. And I, I, hit, I hit another bottom. You know, I was 10 years sober. And I'd got seven years of school, you know. At, uh, what's that Bob Dylan line? 20 years of school and then they put you on the day shift. That's how it felt. Uh, look out, kid, no matter what you did, God knows when, but you do need again. You get, anyway. Uh, so, but what I did was what we do in this program, which was like, after I got through the shock and the depression of it, I essentially did, acted with humility. You know, I said, what skill do I have and what need for it is there in the marketplace? So it turned out there was a need for people who could write complete sentences that were grammatically and, and correct and spelled correctly. And I started to work as a technical writer which would be somewhere near about number 5,000 on my list of preferred careers if I'd been starting out. Uh, was not anywhere near rock star or novelist, you know. It was t- but, you know, I showed up, right? And that's the thing we learned that because I knew by then that getting up in the morning and going to work actually wasn't that bad a thing that I used to think it was when I was stoned. It's a lot harder to go to work when you're stoned, by the way. So that's the other thing, you know, why you get like, oh, I can't go to work, man. Work sucks, you know. You know, just, you know. And, uh, you know, and then gradually, because this stuff happens on its own time, 
eventually the circumstances came together for me to write a book. And it wasn't the book that was going to like, you know, make me a famous novelist. It was a book that was going to serve others. Right? I don't care about other people. You know? I wrote the book and I was like, I wrote it for myself. And people started to say, your book helped me. I was like, really? Oh, that's cool. Well, uh, and, you know, I, 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 just to bring it back to the theme of step two, the way you write a book is that you show up one day at a time. And you, you put in a little bit of time each day on it. You don't have to put in a lot of time every day. You just keep showing up. And eventually, the pages pile up <laughs> because you're showing up, because you're t- doing the next right thing. Not because you're some genius or you have some inspiration. You just show up and you do your work. And lo and behold, there's this thing. It's like, wow, I guess I wrote that. Because people think, oh, when they see a book, they think, I could never write a book because what they see is this completed thing, this big thing. Like, like I have to, like the, li- the line about swallowing the Ganges in one gulp, you know. No, when you write a book, you know, you just take a, one sip out of the Ganges at a time until, you know, you've swallowed the whole thing. Um, but it t- really takes a lot of trust because you're plugging away. It's like, I've written five pages. How am I ever going to get, in? I've written seven pages. I'm never going to reach five, I'm at 15, you know, and, after a while, you're like, oh, hey, it's working. You know, when you get to page 100, you're like, I got this thing now, you know. And then you get writer's block. No, never mind. Uh, I never, I don't believe in writer's block. Because I'm a musician. Do you ever hear of musician's block? No. You pick up your instrument, you don't go like, where am I going to put my hands? How am I going to, how am I going to play a, a, an E chord? You know, you just pick it up and you start to play, right? So I always thought writing was the same thing. You sit down, you just start to type. Same thing. In case you wanted to know how to write a book. Just sit down, start typing. So, that's enough madness for the evening. Um, We have a few minutes left for your own madness. If you have something to say or to ask. I see a hand. Uh, I, I think I can speak. Um, I can hear you well. It's, there's something about the reverb off the roof there. Yeah, I used, I used to be a musician too. I'm sorry. I yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, I'm very curious to hear you expand on um, the relationship between faith, empiricism, and wisdom. I'm not sure I know what empiricism is. It's like. You, well, you, you use the term evidence. Did I? I don't remember much of what I say. So, so in, like empirical evidence, like proof? Yeah, experiential evidence versus faith versus um, wisdom and their relationship. Well, in... The way the, uh, the the Buddhist approach is kind of like taking a sip of the Ganges at a time. You know, it's the you do the 
you know, do I believe that it's worth going to Spirit Rock for a class? Yeah, I have that much faith because I'm only committing two hours of my life. And if I don't like it, I can leave in the middle, you know. So, and then you, and you, and then the teacher says, you know, you should try meditating on a daily basis. You go, mm. well, he seemed to make sense. And, you know, I enjoyed the meditation tonight. I'll, I'll try that. And you do that for a while, and you go, this really works, you know. And you go to another class, and he says, you know, if you really want to get a lot out of this, you should come to one of the day-long retreats. Oh, boy, a whole day. Well, you know, the, the class was good, and then the daily practice was good, so I'll try a day. And so on, until you're up the hill doing a two-month retreat. <laughs> Does that answer your question? I guess not, because you're... Well, that's no fun. <laughs> no, it's, it's necessary thing. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not a philosopher. But I have heard the word heuristic. Anything else? Oh, good, I can go home early. I'm sick. Go home. Have you played with the tension between the uh, powerlessness of... I have a pick in my pocket if you want to borrow it. Me too. Um, I have a guitar in the car. (laughs) Game's over, let's go. (laughs) I have a dog in my car, I'll trade you. Do you play the guitar? I do. She howls while I play. Oh yeah, that's lovely. Um, the uh, the kind of the interesting dialectical tension between, um, sorry, just the interplay between the powerlessness of step one and the power of step two. Yeah. So I just you know you, you must have. I left. I just that's definitely in my like. Yeah, but I just don't always like I said I don't cover everything, but yeah, that's the. We could say that's how the steps are set up to manipulate you into doing what they want you to do. It's one way of putting it, if you're a cynic. But, yeah, clearly there's, uh, the language is intentional, and that, that contrast is intentional to start you out by sort of saying, trying to show you or help you to see... Uh, the ways in which you can't control the world and then you need help, and then uh, turn you towards um, some way of uh, finding something that can help. But you already knew that, so what more can I say? It seems like a productive, uh, to kind of play yeah. with those. It, yeah. it, it seems, you know, you know, that's not the purpose of the steps is to get too wrapped up in playing with the words, but uh, there's something kind of interesting about how it kind of draws you beyond yourself, whatever it is. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I, I think it's fun to play with the words. I mean, I think a lot of what I do is try to pull out a word and play with it in the steps. And, and that, that connection between step one and step two is one that I have talked about. Um, 
it's a it's a delicate thing because the I think we the step one often gets exaggerated into saying we are powerless period <laughs> rather than we are powerless over something uh, and and people get you know saying I'm powerless in my life it's not that's not very helpful you know that it's sort of that seems to undermine the the possibility of my having any agency in my own life and i certainly don't believe that and and i don't think that the the steps are really saying that and it's another way in which i think we have to be really careful about the language of the steps and and how we interpret them because uh, you know we also say it's a program of action so if it's a program of action to take an action, you must have some power. You at least have the power to move your body. Or, well, even maybe, I mean, that's not necessarily, you might not be able to move your body around, but I'm just trying to, uh, you know, you have the, you have the power to, to initiate action in some way. And, uh, and so I, sometimes I hear people uh, Say that they think that the steps are disempowering because they say we're powerless. That they're about making us helpless, and, and that I think that's absolutely not the case at all. I think they're about helping us to learn how to make skillful action and how to use powers, the powers that exist, in a skillful way. The power that I think we, what I think the step one is saying when it says. We admitted we were powerless. The we that are admitting, are, it's an aspect of us. It's the self-centered, you know, ego-craving, ad- addictive part of ourselves that's, that can't do what it wants to do. It can't achieve what it wants to achieve. That is, it can't be in a constant state of intoxicated pleasure uh, that has no ill effects on our life. If that's one definition of <laughs> what we want out of our addiction, we want to just feel good all the time and have not a, have, and have that not cause a problem. And uh, you know, and and that's like a very kind of primal part of human beings, and that becomes dominant in addicts. And it's. It's really destroy. It's what destroys us, and and so recognizing the limits of that part of ourselves. How is is what I think step one is. It's it's the we that's being talked about. It's the I that it's the it's the one who is powerless is that one, but there are other aspects of our body or our mind that have that do have power. But they're not self-centered, you know, so that's and and that's a tricky thing to even talk about. And because I'm out of time, I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, but it's tricky. I'll just say because to say, well, there's some part of me that has power that's okay, that's okay. It's it's that. How do you know which part of you is is acting right now? And that's that's part of what mindfulness tries to show us. So uh, even though we're pretty much out of time, I want to take one minute to just close by going inside for a moment.
Oh, coming together like this and practicing together is a gift to each of us individually. And it's also a gift to the community itself. May we bring our willingness, our kindness, our wisdom and faith into our lives so that it may bring freedom to others as well. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you all for coming. And drive carefully. Be safe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.